This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation. If you are double vaccinated and there is a 75% chance you have received both shots, how much empathy are you feeling toward the unvaccinated? 416 360 toll free 1 866 744 740. We know here in the city of Toronto, according to data, shared with us yesterday by Mayor John Tory that 99%, almost 99% of cases of hospitalized COVID since May have been among the unvaccinated. They are getting sick with the Delta variant. And the fourth wave is the pandemic of the unvaccinated. According to an Angus Reid poll, most vaccinated Canadians are indifferent to the unvaccinated getting sick with the virus. 83% say they have no sympathy for those who choose not to get the vaccine and then become sick. A Toronto Star report on this topic says that anecdotally, patience is even wearing thin among healthcare professionals. I want to get your opinion on this as well. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Joining us to discuss, epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, Dr. Thomas Unger, psychiatrist-in-chief at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and Dr. Sarah Conrath, social psychologist at Indiana University. Welcome to all of you. Thank you, James. Well, let me ask each of you what you think of this dynamic that is really starting to play out. It is more than simmering. It is, it's becoming a thing. Dr. Vaisman. Yeah, I, I perfectly understand that there is now a progression towards having less and less, less and less sympathy for those individuals who are not vaccinated. For myself personally, as a healthcare provider, I think it's important for healthcare providers to realize that this shouldn't translate to when providing care for those individuals, because our responsibility as healthcare workers is to just to do what's best for the patients, regardless of their personal views or regardless of what brought them into the hospital. I we understand why this is a general sentiment in the general public. Uh, Dr. Thomas Unger. Yeah, it's really kind of understandable because this thing is drawn out now for a year and a half, and we're all tired and experiencing what what people are compassion fatigue, um, especially when there's a potential wonderful solution there to protect ourselves that not everyone's taking advantage of. So it's a pretty expected dynamic. We're human. It's frustrating to not see others get vaccinated. But the real key is to really understand uh, we're here to help people no matter what. We continue to provide care all the time. We do not judge. Um, and it's really our job to try to get people's thoughts and find out what it is that's holding them back and try to understand why they're hesitant rather than judge them for it. When you say it's our job, do you mean us as individuals or you as professionals? It's mine as a professional, but really as a member of society, instead of just being angry and pushing someone, if you can try to understand what what's going on in their thinking that's got them at a place where they're at, because sometimes only by understanding it can you be empathic and can you understand why they're doing that, and that can open up the door to a change. Dr. Conrath, your thoughts on this, and I understand from my producer, Zeev, that you are a Canadian working at Indiana University. Your research is on the science of empathy. Yes. So um, I, can, I can give some context that even in the best of times, research finds... Dr. Conrath, your line is not the best. Uh, are you able to move around or change the position of your phone? Okay. Let me try. Give it a go. Give it a go. If not, I'll get Zeev to call you back. Zeev, I think we need to just... 
I, well, let's disconnect Dr. Conrath and, and we'll get back to her. I definitely want to hear what she has to say. The phone lines are going crazy here. Um, Dr. Vaisman, in terms of trying to have empathy, empathy and understand, as Dr. Unger was pointing out, it's, it's our job as members of society to be empathetic, to try to figure out what is going under, on underneath. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think when you look at the remaining individuals who are not vaccinated in the province, which is about 18%, probably a very small proportion of those individuals are these people that we colloquially call anti-vaxxers who are actively spreading misinformation. Outside of that, you have a large chunk of people who are either have poor health literacy or poorly connected to the medical system or poorly connected to society in general. So I think having empathy for that and understanding what's going on is really important. And of course, it is the role of the provincial and municipal government to do whatever they can to try to reach out to those individuals, to go to them and to speak to them and to try to convince them to get vaccinated. You know, when I see this percentage, 83% of Canadians say they have no sympathy if you fall ill and you haven't gotten the vaccine. That's easy to say. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if that if that is real, you know, that's kind of a visceral reaction. But we don't I mean, a person smokes, say, for decades and they get lung cancer. We have empathy for them, even though they knew all along they shouldn't have been smoking. Dr. Vaisman. Yes, I, exactly. I, I think, you know, for healthcare workers, it's very obvious that many of our patients have some responsibility to play in their illnesses. But that does not play into our ability to look after them and provide sympathy. We, we can't play that game. We have to always look at patients first and look at their safety first. And, of course, the, uh, I think that's a great insight that you said that it's very visceral. And with people who smoke, you know, the obvious comparison is, well, that's not an infectious disease. It doesn't affect me. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there are many other infectious diseases that people are not responsible about in terms of either getting vaccines to prevent it or, uh, you know, uh, irresponsible behavior. But, again, it's, it's, it's not our role as healthcare providers to judge that. It's simply to support them and to educate them and guide them towards better behavior. Before we get to the phones, and I know you want to weigh in on this hot topic, uh, I think we have a better line now with Dr. Conrath at the University of, or Indiana University. Doctor, go ahead. Can you hear me? Much better. Great, wonderful. So I was earlier that as an empathy scientist, I know the research shows that even when things are fine, it's empathy takes effort. And then also that when we're tired, it's even harder. So obviously, we are all exhausted. So I'm not surprised to see that the majority of Canadians right now, Canadians are known for their empathy, but that the majority of Canadians right now are not feeling empathy for people who get sick when they're unvaccinated. Well, yeah, I mean, therein lies the frustration, right? You can do something about it to help end the the pandemic, and you're not. And uh, for me and for everybody else, it's, well, that's frustrating because we could bring this thing in in a matter of six weeks if the unvaccinated would get vaccinated. Right. So there's a lot of frustration happening. And and I agree with your other guests that it's not helpful to um, tell somebody that they're just stupid or wrong when they're making a choice, um, but to try to understand them and where they're coming from. Um, and then maybe they're not actually paying attention to facts the way we might, but maybe there's some emotional thing we don't understand about them that's keeping them away from vaccines. I want to ask each of you, uh, once we get through the callers and just give you a moment to mull this over, um, what kind of motivation can we, the vaccinated, provide for the unvaccinated uh, to help us get through this pandemic, to get them to get them with their two shots so we can wrap this thing up? Let's go to Pat in Toronto first. Uh, Pat, what would you like to say about this? Well, I think the doctors are mixing up something. I think we have the whole issue of providing medical service, and I would hope that triage would be part of that equation, that if you have somebody who has deliberately not sought out, uh, I hope you would be treating the person who has sought out and done all the right things before if there's limited service. But the second piece of this is the doctors are mixing up the billing aspect of this. I mean, you provide service, but the question is, does the service have to be provided free? That's a separate decision, and I think that's one where I think uh, we should have some way to encourage people through a charge. I mean, 
I think that would be a very high motivator. Um, and I think the doctors are mixing up those two things. They, they have a requirement to do the medical side, but they shouldn't be involved in the billing side. Dr. Vaisman, what do you say to Pat's comments? I think uh, going down the route of thinking about patient behavior as it relates to their medical condition and passing judgment and charging them, it's probably not going to fly in Canada as part of our you know, general culture and the rules around providing medical care to everyone. But I do, I do think that there is some part to play with the role of mandates or passports where there is a, it's not really punitive, but it does provide some restriction and some kind of limitation in their ability to participate in society. And, and that, that in itself can provide a motivation for people to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't think like punishing somebody by charging them for the medical care would be a good idea, but certainly restricting them from areas that are high risk and restricting them in that way may be more helpful. Let's go to Crystal in Aurora. Crystal, what are your thoughts? Hi, Jane. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just want to put it out there. Um, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I do have both my my vaccines. Um, I have an uncle who is an anti-vaxxer, his whole family. And sadly, he's in an induced coma right now because he got COVID, 2% of oxygen, um, all he had. And I just want to put it out there to the people who don't believe in the vaccine, who don't believe that, you know, the government is doing us any good by giving us these vaccines. Um, They have to listen to these stories. They're true. They're not a joke. Um, With everything that they've been reading on the Internet about, you know, putting a chip on us, changing our DNA, Um, it's really, really sad what's happening out there. And I don't know how much more can we put it out there for them to realize. Well, thank you for your call and taking the time and um, wishing your family members all the best. Uh, Sounds like a dire situation. Dr. Unger, what about that? Personal stories, when people can actually hear stories uh, like that uh, of people in comas with COVID-19 because they refuse to get vaccinated. Yeah, those are very powerful because you see, the, the caller used the word belief. And sometimes it's those testimonials someone you trust, someone you know, someone from your own community, when they tell you a story, that gets your heart going, as, as this caller got my heart going here. Uh, and that's way more powerful than when people in the science world or doctors throw numbers and statistics at you, because they're, they're talking to your head. And even though they're correct, sometimes you need that heartstring pull to really get change to happen and try and connect the head to the belief system. So it's not just a belief for no reason to try to get the science and the real information out there uh, so that people can make the best choice for themselves. And, you know, I, I still may think people are making a poor choice. I'm, I'm frustrated. I disagree with them not getting back. Absolutely. But what I mean by empathy is just try and understand what's going on for them, uh, that they're making that choice so that I can do exactly what this caller wants to do is to try to find a way to connect to them so they can perhaps make a much more informed choice that's more than just belief. It's belief plus knowledge. Anne in Richmond Hill, what would you like to add to this conversation? Hi, good morning. Uh, aside from the question of empathy, I, I don't think we as uh, uh, the general population can uh, afford to dismiss the unvaccinated uh, simply because the numbers are showing that the unvaccinated are uh, ahead, well ahead of the vaccinated in terms of um, getting COVID and getting really sick. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, with the the way the numbers are, are going and being projected, uh, I can't see how uh, the healthcare system isn't going to face another burden this fall with the, our hospital beds and our ICUs becoming overrun. So from that point of view, whether it takes empathy, whether it takes more understanding or whatever it takes, um, empathy included, I think we're going to have to try our best to keep uh, all options open when it comes to dealing with people whose views aren't don't represent perhaps our own. Uh, Dr. Conrath, what, what would you like to say in reaction to Anne's very thoughtful comments? Yes, I thought that was very thoughtful. Empathy is one pathway to helping people to make a different choice. Um, research shows that doctors who show more empathy to their patients, for example, um, actually have patients who are more willing to, to go along with their recommendations, like take medication and do what they ask. So empathy can be really powerful. 
and more powerful than just like telling someone they're wrong or being angry. Mm -hmm. No, it's so easy to be angry and be frustrated. Um, And let's go to Daryl in Toronto, and then I'll get your final thoughts before we wrap up the show. Daryl, go ahead. Hi. Uh, Part of my question kind of came up before, but what I was going to ask is, if you have one ventilator and you have someone who refused to get the vaccine, as opposed to someone who had gotten it and still ended up sick, what would your choice be? And that bearing in mind that when you do transplants, would you give a liver to someone who stopped drinking a year and a half before mm-hmm. or to someone who refused to? Okay, thank you for that question, Daryl. Uh, Dr. Vaseman, luckily, uh, during the first couple of waves of COVID, we did not need to go to triage protocol, but that was being considered during the pandemic. Yes, uh, I think it's still unlikely to occur in the future. And I don't think, based on what I know about the system, is that it's uh, those kinds of considerations aren't likely to be factored in when deciding on who gets a lung or who gets to be on the ventilator. Uh, you know, there's a lot more medical considerations that go into that. But but I do understand why people are thinking about that, certainly in the U.S., with changes to the health, to the uh, the insurance policies about increasing, you know, the, the, the callers that I've spoken earlier about charging them. So I, I certainly understand why people are thinking about these kind of, um, you know, healthcare-associated kind of measures about restricting or not prioritizing people who are unvaccinated. But I just don't think it'll be incorporated into the decision making. Right. Um, on the the topic of uh, the majority of us being tired and frustrated and double vaxxed and wanting to get back to normal, I guess rather than being angry and frustrated, how should we, and, and I'll go to Dr. Unger about this, how should we change our mindset so we can stay positive, stay fresh, uh, and stay enthusiastic for the future despite what's going on? Yeah, so I think, I mean, we're, we're going in a good direction, even though there's a way to go. Um, again, one thing is to be tolerant or try to understand what people are up to, hopefully that they change. But, you know, freedoms aren't absolute. So I think as we see restrictions coming in, there are limits to, be, to citizenship and to freedoms. And we're starting to see those come in for political reasons and whatever. And I think that's very encouraging because if somebody else is making that risky choice to not get vaccinated, I don't want it to affect me. I want to be able to get back to my life and my family's life as much as we can. So as those restrictions come in, those choices will be more about those individuals and perhaps affect me less. So I think that's very encouraging that we're finally starting to see more and more of those those restrictions on our freedoms come based on the choice. People can make their individual choice, but at least we can keep moving forward. Uh, Dr. Conrad, sorry, I only have about 20, 30 seconds for you to wrap it up. If Your final thoughts. My final thoughts that we need to also have empathy and compassion for ourselves. Um, and I think if we can rebuild and recover in the next little while, that will help us to restore the type of empathy maybe we want to have for people who are different. Um, so I, I would just recommend that that's the next phase for us is to just take care of ourselves and try to recover. Thank you very much, all three of you, for your time today. Thank you. Take care. Welcome. Dr. Sarah Conrath is a social psychiatrist, psychologist, sorry, at the Indiana University. Thomas Unger, Dr. Unger is a psychiatrist in chief at St. Michael's Hospital here in Toronto and epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman is an infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. Jane for Libby, get ready to call tomorrow because it's free for all Friday. We'll talk to you then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. The deteriorating situation in Afghanistan continues to escalate. There have been two explosions today outside Kabul airport with a U.S. official saying the complex attack is definitely believed to have been carried out by the Islamic State terror group. The official says members of the U.S. military were wounded in the attack, which involved two suicide bombers and gunmen. This official spoke with the Associated Press on condition of anonymity to discuss ongoing operations. 
operations. The Islamic State terror group is even more radical than the Taliban, if you can believe it, and has carried out a wave of attacks targeting civilians. This official says evacuation flights have continued to take off from Kabul airport in the waning days of an airlift to help people flee the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. We learned at 8 o'clock this morning, our time from Canada's Acting Chief of Defence Staff General Wayne Eyre, that our country's mission to evacuate Canadians and allies from Afghanistan ended today at midnight our time, and that at this time, no further evacuation flights are being planned. So where do we go from here? Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Elliot Tepper, Professor of International Relations at Carleton University. Dr. Tepper, welcome back to Fight Back. Thank you. And Chris Eklund, founder of the Canadian Heroes Foundation. Hello, Chris. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, it's hard to it's hard to know where to begin. L- let's talk about the latest occurrences first, the suicide bombings. Dr. Tepper, how is ISIS playing into what's going on in Afghanistan and what is their relationship to the Taliban? Their relationship with the Taliban is uh, let us say antithetical. This is a group that actually split from the Taliban because the Taliban were too nice. <laughs> I, I, I exaggerate, but they, they as you put it, uh, they were not uh, nearly as uh, doctrinally uh, coherent as this, this group would like. Uh, I suspect one impact of the ISIS presence there is that uh, there's now going to be a competition for the hearts and minds of the people of Afghanistan, particularly the Taliban base, and that's likely to drag the Taliban even further in the direction of fundamentalism. So so what do you have playing out there? You've got the Taliban. Uh, Al-Qaeda is still alive yeah. and well. You've got ISIS. Uh, and are they all competing for who can be the most evil? Like, what is the thought process? I'd like to just stop there and say yes. <laughs> that is the situation. The, uh, the doctrinal differences are very important to the three groups you mentioned. Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are still, I think, very closely interrelated. There were an awful lot of foreign fighters involved in the Taliban uh, blitzkrieg uh, that, you know, brought them from nowhere to power within a matter of weeks. Uh, So I think there's still an interrelationship there, but they are both opposed to the the ISIS-K, the Khorasan group, as they call themselves, Khorasan being a traditional name for the area surrounding them uh, where they are. There's likely to be some bloodshed there. From our view, sitting here, there's really not a dime's worth of difference between them. But that, that um, in terms of how they would behave if they got power, I suspect that the, remember, the Taliban is now the best armed terrorist group on the planet. They have taken over all of those supplies that the Americans equipped the um, Afghan army with. They're in control of Bagram Air Base. I don't, they don't seem to have an air force at the minute. But they are uh, very well positioned to take on domestic groups, including ISIS. But ISIS, as we have seen now, let's back up and say, you mentioned the two bombings. This plays into the denouement, Jane. This, the end of this terrible, tragic uh, Western involvement in, in Afghanistan took place today, as you said, with Canada saying this is our last as of today. The uh, only people who could get out had to go to that airport, and ISIS uh, said, first of all, the Taliban said, we're controlling all the access points, and we're not going to let any Afghan citizens go. So people that we want to take out, no way. But uh, then ISIS clearly indicated they planned a terrorist attack. So we were in position, the Western forces were in position of saying, do not come to the airport, which is your only way out. Mm-hmm. And that's what the ISIS has done today. And would the Taliban have approved these ISIS attacks? No. Okay. Uh, well, let me back up again. What we see on the surface in Afghanistan is rarely the complete picture. That's why the Taliban could take over so swiftly. A lot was happening that was totally out of sight or over the comprehension of people like, uh, you know, the Canadians who were there and certainly the Americans. The NATO forces had more, more troops there than the Americans at the end. 
a lot was happening behind the scenes, a very well-planned and ultimately well-executed Blitzkrieg operation took place. Deals were made between elders and uh, warlords, all of that out of the sight of, of, you know, us. That's, so what, trying to figure out who is really supporting whom there, people Mm -hmm. switch sides. But I think in this case, the animosity between the Taliban and ISIS-K runs very deep. Would these attacks, and we knew in advance um, that there was going to be a security threat uh, to Kabul airport, is that why we ended this particular mission today, because of the concerns about the bombings? Because uh, I guess we could have stayed a couple of more days. Uh, Not really, as it turns out. Uh, What's really happened is the Americans agreed to the Taliban condition. Right. The Taliban said, you will get out by the 31st, and we are not providing no extensions. Uh, We want you gone. As a result of that, uh, the Americans, remember, had more or less doubled the number of troops they had on the ground. (laughs) They had 3,200 or so, and then that doubled up to 6,000 or so in order to run this evacuation. To get those troops out by the end of the month, takes time. So the, the, everybody basically ran out of time because the Taliban is calling the shots and said, we want you gone. We're not going to give any extensions. Joe Biden was open to the idea of an extension. The Taliban shut him down. That means you have to have an orderly withdrawal. Now they're talking about orderly withdrawal of their troops. And remember, we have special forces there, which are in the same situation. To get out those troops by the end of, you know, by the 31st, an imposed deadline uh, by the Taliban, um, we had to stop, all civilians had to stop uh, their operations by about today. Let's go over to Chris Eklund, founder of the Canadian Heroes Foundation. Chris, talk about the people left behind, how many people there are, what their connections to Canada and other Western countries are at this point. Well, first off, thank you for uh, having me on and... uh, Dr. Tepper basically set it up pretty good. It's uh, it's an extremely confusing uh, situation for most people to kind of understand how everything operates in Afghanistan. It's it's definitely uh, almost basically a one-off. But I'm actually talking with some of our our, our team right now on the ground, and um, you know we don't know if uh, any of those injured were ones in our care or not. Um, but right now, everybody's just trying to stay uh, stay positive, and uh, we're, we're as a country saying uh, a lot of prayers uh, for them. Talk, but, talk about your organization. You say the people you're caring for. Uh, what what does the Canadian Heroes Foundation do in Afghanistan? Well, our foundation there there's a small group um, for the last few months in Canada. In Afghanistan, it's basically just a couple dozen uh, people, uh, Canadians, um, different organizations, uh, mostly uh, veterans, and uh, basically we all came together to to help out the people. Um, basically, had over uh, a thousand in our care, um, brought them all to Kabul, um, you know, put them in in safe houses, you know. Um, Took care of the needs that uh, that that they have, and uh, try to get them onto an airplane. So we don't know the exact numbers. Um, one of the people uh, in our care just sent a picture. He was on basically the last flight, and he would be uh, down in Kuwait by now. So we we think we've got probably uh, two to three hundred out, but uh, sadly we we left probably about seven hundred behind. Hmm. Now, just this morning, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, in his prime ministerial capacity, said that the the characterization that Canada's mission is over is not right. What, and I'll ask this to both of you, Chris, what could still be done or what will still be done by Canadian forces? Well, I'd have to answer that in in, in kind of uh, multiple answers. for for the patriots that are involved in, in this operation outside the government, outside the military, 
this operation is never going to end. It will continue on for years and decades to come. It's our duty to our country. The the people that uh, helped out our forces when we stepped foot in Afghanistan, um, we have a duty to them. Uh, that's that's the first thing, and that doesn't stop today. That will continue on. On the military side, uh, the men and women uh, of our Canadian Armed Forces are are doing an absolutely fantastic job. Um, I'm talking to to them all the time. They are being extremely impacted by this because this this is something that is uh, affecting them personally, uh, especially with the children. Um, so, you know, we're going back and forth. Uh, today was supposed to be um, uh, an incredible day. We were supposed to have three aircraft. We could almost got about 2,000 out, but obviously that didn't happen. Now, on the government side, well, that's where... Uh, that's the big question because when all of this started in earnest, uh, say three months ago, I very quickly um, got a feeling and understanding that the government was simply not interested in this. And uh, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. And going forward, uh, as every day went on, we knew that the government was simply not looking at this the way that they should be. So it's it's a very very sad and kind of a pathetic statement for me to to say that it's mm-hmm. uh it's something i never ever thought that as a canadian i ever would be saying that but now here we are in an election and even chris alexander our, our former ambassador mm-hmm. the other day in another news network said it right out he goes i just simply do not understand you know why we're in an election but that will be uh that's a different discussion so with the government, the next thing is probably about four days ago, I put together another operational plan, sent it to the prime minister and the three ministers involved. Um, and sadly, I, I don't expect the government to act on any of it, uh, period. Um, but um, you mean, per, but not until hear, until after the election, you mean, right? Well, it, I mean, it can it can be done right now. Okay. Um, but if there needs to be an interest from the government, and, and I simply don't think that that's going to happen, but uh, I'll wrap it up by saying what Canadians need to understand and, and hear is that um, the operation that's happening privately and, and will continue to the future will, will never end. Our listeners do want to get in on this discussion about uh, the future, to what's happening today and the future of Afghanistan. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Tepper, that question to you, um, and Chris has provided us with a lot of information about what could still be done by Canada, the reference uh, Justin Trudeau made this morning. Yes, um... Well, first of all, I'm very pleased and, in a sense, honored to be sharing the panel with with Chris. I mean, this organization and the people he represents and the Canadian Armed Forces over time have really done their their job. Canadians can be proud of them. In terms of going forward, the government of Canada has now said two things. One is, as you said, oh, we're going to stay engaged and we're going to provide consular services. On the other hand... Uh, we are not going to recognize the Taliban, and by the way, we've closed our embassy. So how are we going to carry on uh, at an official level with this, uh, with this current situation, meaning that the Taliban are not yet a legitimate government? They'll never be legitimate in a sense, but they will perhaps get international recognition. The Chinese and the Russians will almost certainly will recognize them quite quickly. Uh, but uh, the last time they came to power, it was the UAE, Pakistan, and... I think Egypt <laughs> were the only three countries that recognize. Rec- it, it brings to mind George W. Bush's uh, term of the axis of evil. Yeah. yeah. Um, dealing with the Taliban going forward is going to be very difficult. Get, looking after our people is an imperative. How we square that circle remains to be seen. Let's go to Sita in Mississauga. Sita, you've been listening along. What are your thoughts about Afghanistan and Canada's role there? Hi, everyone. Thanks for the great job you all are doing. 
Um, Canada and U.S. went to find bin Laden. We know eventually they will leave, but they overstayed 20 years. This made Afghan people weaker by depending on them as a safety net. Pulling out the troop without a plan was a horrible and sad mistake by these two countries. They should have started the process to relocate interpreters, etc., and family a year ago when Trump made that decision. Plus, the army told those in charge what will happen to those who left behind. So, but most of the blame I will give to the country, Afghanistan itself. Why they don't have a braver president and an army to protect its, its, its citizens, um, this country would not at fall like overnight into these uh, in it, the arms of the um, Taliban. But anyway, the sacrifice and the loss of lives and the hard work our soldiers did did not go wasted. The Afghani people accepted and wanted changes. Children went to school. Women gained their strength and voice. And Canada should not stop helping. Excellent, excellent observations. Thank you for calling, Sita. Thank you. I'd like to get our panelists' reaction to your comments. Uh, Chris, to you first. Um, Sita brings up a a lot of good things, uh, good points there. The one thing that I'm basically working on right now, and it's starting to get a lot of support, is I'm I'm working on the wording for legislation that'll be a bill, and I'm basically calling it the No Man Left Behind Bill. And what it's going to be is a document that will forever change how we as a country operate when we go anywhere in the world. So, for example, if you want to back up, say, 20 years, what this piece of legislation uh, will be is that once we set foot in any country, and let's say we engage a local um, Afghanistan person to become an interpreter, a cook, a cleaner, etc., the legislation will set out very, very clearly, uh, basically, that at any point in time this person wants to come to Canada, it will be a clear path for citizenship for him and his immediate family. Mm. So what that will do right away is for forever get rid of any time constraints, what government, flavor of the day, that type of thing. It's something uh, that we should have done. It's the ethical and moral thing to do. And going forward, I hope that it'll get all party support, the Senate, etc. And we will never, ever have a problem like this ever again. That sounds like a great solution, Dr. Tepper. Uh, your response to, the, to Chris's comments as well as our caller. The Afghan forces lost about 66,000 people. Uh, to suggest that they have not tried to defend their country, it might be better to put it differently as, as we're starting to learn more and more detail as the country didn't defend them. The kind of government that ended up uh, operating over a period of times awash with money uh, and unfortunately misappropriated money, the people on the ground were left uh, to their own devices. So the possibility exists that the nature of the government of the day rather than the nature of the army of the day is what we should be looking at. In terms of what I just heard from Chris, if we're in an election, what a good time to be proposing that in the middle of a crisis. I can't see any political party in Canada saying, no, we don't want that. So the timing is excellent. We'll take one more call here before we wrap up this segment. And you've both helped put uh, the current situation in perspective for Zoomer radio listeners. Let's go to Melanie in Toronto. Melanie, what would you like to add? Well, I believe a lot of damage that goes beyond Afghanistan has been done by our governments and in the States. Because I'll tell you something, if I was in a country where there was war and, and, and unrest, I would never trust the Canadian and American government to help me and to protect me if I was going to try to bring peace to my country. So the damage has been done around the world now that do not help the Americans, do not help the Canadians, because you're going to pay for it with your life, and then you're going to be left in ditches filled with sewage. 
Okay, thank you for your comments, Melanie. Um, it's an emotional topic. I mean, we've all been watching this for 20 years since 9-11. Uh, I'll ask you both this question uh, as we wrap up. As, we, uh, as a world, as, as world nations, are we going to leave the people on their own with the Taliban in charge? Is there the possibility we could go to war in Afghanistan to rid that country of the Taliban for once and for all? Chris? Well, Dr. Tepper uh, knows a, a lot more about international stuff than, mm-hmm. than I do, but I'm, I'm sure he will agree that in Afghanistan you don't know what's going to happen kind of tomorrow. But uh, what I've been saying, and I think a lot of people have been saying, is that, you know, the future, it's, it's unclear. Our crystal ball doesn't uh, is a little foggy. Anything can happen uh, going forward. But what the people of Afghanistan need to know is that the whole world is watching. We are all praying. And like I said beforehand, um, I, I can speak for myself and a lot of others that we're simply not, we're not giving up on them. And Dr. Tepper, to you. I can't see at the moment a re-engagement of the international community in Afghanistan unless they renege on their promise of not being a base for international terrorism. Remember, the only reason that the West got involved, uh, despite the nature of the Taliban, was that they sheltered al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda led to 9-11. Right. That's one part of the answer. Another part, the broader question that was just raised is, who, who's going to trust the West? Who's going to trust the U.S.? Who's going to trust us again? There's no doubt at all that after the Kurds were to- thrown under the bus in, in Iraq, and after... Uh, what we're seeing in front of us, the idea that America is going to be a steadfast leader of a rejuvenated alliance of democracies has been drawn into question by this. Uh, There is no doubt at all that in the grand battle battle between those who value democratic space compared to authoritarianism, authoritarianism has just scored a victory. We will leave it there. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Dr. Elliot Tepper is Professor of International Relations at Carleton University, and Chris Eklund is the founder of the Canadian Heroes Foundation. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. We change topics now. You thought we wouldn't be talking about COVID-19 today? Well, we are. I'm wondering, have you lost your patience with the unvaccinated? While the unvaccinated have been vocal against getting the COVID shots, the vast majority of people are starting to voice their anger against the anti-vaxxers. Are you among them? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We discuss this new dynamic with a panel of experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation. Great to have you with me again. Every riding in the city of Toronto went liberal in the 2019 election. But this time, Justin Trudeau may lose some of these contests, either to New Democrats or Conservatives. One of the ridings is Toronto Danforth, which has been represented by Liberal MP Julie DeBruzen, who is running for re-election. But the NDP candidate, Claire Haxel, is ahead in voter support, with the Conservative candidate, well behind both the New Democrat and the Liberal. We'd like to profile this riding for a few minutes and have invited both the NDP and Liberal candidates to join us. Unfortunately, Julie DeBruzen is unavailable today. We hope to have her on Fight Back at a later time. But Claire Haxel has agreed to join us. Claire, welcome to Fight Back. Hi, Jane. Thanks so much for having me. Now, your riding, which I was a resident of for about 16 years, has... Oh, we miss you. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. I very much enjoyed my time there. I was just kitty-cornered to Jones and Danforth on a street, uh, Langford Avenue. Oh, nice. Great neighborhood. 
Um, it's traditionally been an NDP stronghold and was held by the late Jack Layton. In fact, Layton was the opposition leader in that riding when he died. Before we mm-hmm. find out a little bit about you, what happened in the last election that it went liberal? You know, I think that the folks of Toronto Danforth, you know, really take their vote seriously. Everyone thinks really long and hard before they're voting. There was a lot of hope with Justin Trudeau. Um, and I can understand why folks uh, went that way in the last two elections. But I think that that hope has really diminished as a lot of promises were not realized. And folks are looking for change. They're looking for action. They're looking for those promises actually realized. And uh, they just didn't get that that last six years. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You are the NDP candidate for Toronto Danforth. I am. I am. Yeah. So I live in Toronto Danforth with my partner and our kids. We are are raising our kids here. They go to Dundas Public School. And I grew up in Toronto. My I had a single mom and because my father passed away when I was 10. And my mom raised me and my three sisters. She had a small business on Queen Street, a used record store. And uh, we spent a lot of Saturdays behind the cash at Driftwood, uh, you know, selling records. And then I moved away, went to UBC for university and later the University of Oxford, where I have a master's in healthcare policy and came back to Toronto because Toronto's home. And this is where I want to raise my kids. This is where I want to live my life. And I've been working in healthcare ever since. That is an impressive resume, having gone to Oxford. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so what do you bring? Uh, what would you bring to the position of Member of Parliament for Toronto Danforth? Yeah, I think when you've worked in the not-for-profit healthcare sector for as long as I have, you really understand what it means to spend taxpayer dollars. You know, we are extremely careful and accountable for every penny we spend, and we deliver on our promises. You know, we're used to making plans for a year and five years and having goals, and those goals being reaching the most people, being highly efficient with our funds, making sure that people's lives are meaningfully improved by the services you're delivering. That's exactly what government needs to be doing, right? We need to be accountable to our constituents. We need to have goals that we state that we're going to meet and then that we actually do it. And that's what the NDP does. The NDP delivers. We've seen that the last 18 months in the pandemic where it was Jugmeet and my NDP colleagues that pushed to get served to $2,000 a month, that pushed to get that wage subsidy to 75%. And they've shown that when you send an NDP to Ottawa, we deliver. Might it be a good idea to uh, return another minority government so that the New Democrats can continue to push for Canadians? Yeah, I completely agree. I, I mean, we're, all, we're running to win. Jagmeet wants to be prime minister, and I think he would be a fantastic prime minister. Um, Here in Toronto Danforth, I'm running to win, and I believe that Toronto Danforth, you know, we have that long legacy of being Jack Layton's riding, and we're going to go orange again. The folks here, I hear it on the doorstep all the time. They are let down. They're ready for change. They're ready for action. And there are issues that are important to folks here that, that, you know, the liberals aren't delivering on, and that's things like long-term care, you know, and we have got to get... Uh, profit out of long-term care. And unfortunately, the Liberals and Conservatives have voted against that NDP initiative. And I mean, I hear it on the doorstep. Folks are saying that was a mistake. You know, we learned in the last 18 months that private long-term care facilities is where the majority of deaths were of residents and staff, and that we shouldn't be making money off of our seniors' care. That should be a nonprofit. We had a, a discussion at this time uh, yesterday about long-term mm-hmm. care and mm-hmm. and getting reaction to Jagmeet Singh's proposal uh, mm-hmm. to get law, a for-profit out of nursing homes in 10 mm-hmm. years from now, as well as developing national standards. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of the viability of that happening uh, and the doability of it, is this a federal responsibility? I will ask you the same as I asked my guests yesterday. You know, there's plenty of room for the federal government in this area. 
for example, Rivera, a company that had some of the highest death rates and some of the worst stories from COVID-19, is actually owned by a federal crown corporation at the public sector pension plan, and we can start nationalizing Rivera. We can also work with the provinces to sign deals and bring long-term care into the public sector. The thing, the thing about healthcare, you know, it wasn't built overnight. It started in one province and grew, and Jugmeet is the only leader who believes that you should be covered by the public system no matter how old you are. It, it's outrageous to me that folks reach a certain age, they've had public health care their whole life, then you get to an age and boom, you got to be hit with private care. That's wrong. we got to stop that. It's You know, it's interesting. Uh, Jugmeet Singh uh, is polling very well with Canadians mm-hmm. in terms of how they feel about him as a leader. Mm-hmm. Actually, both he and Aaron O'Toole are outranking Justin Trudeau uh, for voting with your gut and voting with your head. And it's it's Singh. It's Jugmeet Singh who's coming out ahead of all three. What mm-hmm. is he doing right? If if and I'm, I'm sure you believe since he's your leader that he is going about the campaign properly. But how, how, what is it that is resonating with Canadians about how he is as a person? Well, I think it's because, you know, Jugmeet speaks from the heart. He has had, besides the fact that he's he's very brilliant and, and incredibly well credentialed, he also has shared a lot of experiences that Canadians have experienced, you know, and he, and people see that when they speak. They see the emotion in his voice when he talks about um, the work that we're going to do towards reconciliation and working with Indigenous folks. They see that this is not um, just lip service. They see that he is real. And, you know, I think that we all have people in our life who make a lot of promises and don't deliver on them. And you kind of just know that in your gut. Um, but then you have those friends that make promises, and you know not only are they going to deliver, but they're going to show up early to help, and they're going to stay late. And and folks just get that from Jimmy. That's exactly who he is. Now, in terms of uh, what is likely to happen on September 20th, the polls would mm-hmm. indicate that it could be either a conservative or a liberal minority. Um, how? What do you say to residents in Toronto, Danforth, who might be saying, what can you do for us as a backbencher of the third party? Mm, well, I, I mean, I think this is the election where folks need to vote with their heart, right? They need to vote for the party that is showing that they're there and standing up for everyday Canadians. They need to um, get out and vote. That's the most important thing. I think that a conservative minority is very, very, very unlikely, so almost a non-issue. And that in Toronto Danforth, this is an opportunity to have a strong NDP voice in Ottawa you know, delivering for the change that they want to see. Well, Jugmeet has been there already a couple of times, so he definitely sees Toronto Danforth, and he wants to call it Toronto Leighton. I know he's appealed to Elections Canada to make that change, so he certainly sees the people in your riding as supporters of his vision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and we've had such a warm reception. Every time Jugmeet uh, makes it to the riding, folks want to come out and meet him. We were at the uh, Leslieville Farmer's Market in Greenwood Park a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, it's hard to get a few feet without folks wanting to come and take selfies and just talk about how much um, his running means to them and and how supportive they are of the NDP. Claire, thank you for taking the time to introduce yourself to us. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. It's such a pleasure, James. Take care. Have a great day. And everybody, wear sunscreen, drink lots of water. It is super hot. <laughs> yes, you would know going door to door. I do, I do. That is <laughs> it. so much. You're welcome. That is NDP candidate Claire Haxel running in the Toronto riding of Toronto Danforth against the incumbent Liberal MP Julie DeBruzen, who could not join us today. Uh, we will get Julie on at another time. It's Jane for Libby. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come, as Canada's latest mission in Afghanistan has officially ended, we discuss what's next for Canadians and Afghans with connections to Canada who are still on the ground in Kabul. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.